Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Preview. On March 5th. 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 in the The most interesting thing is that the objects appear in the infrared camera of the plane, but were not visible to the naked eye. Had the camera not been operating at that time, the crew would have never known they had company. The sudden changes in speed indicated that these flying objects used a far more advanced technology than ours. Mexican authorities chose to make the video available to the public even though they had no valid explanation for the event. Quite different is the attitude of the American government, which has never officially recognized the existence of flying objects of unknown origin. This has caused a growing wave of former military and civilian pilots, air controllers, and even former astronauts who accuse the Pentagon of hiding the information on UFOs they have apparently been collecting for over 50 years. Good evening. We begin with shocking allegations that UFOs have interfered with missiles at U.S. Air Force bases. On July 2008, some former military officials have revealed that these unidentified flying objects have repeatedly managed to neutralize the nuclear defense system of the United States. In five different states, they also claim a cover-up. Uh, there are hundreds of declassified documents which indicate that UFOs have demonstrated a distinct and ongoing interest in our nuclear weapon sites. This is very widespread. What you're seeing here this evening is the tip of the iceberg. And as I watched, 
1964, Lieutenant Robert Jacobs was a U.S. Army cameraman based in Vandenberg, California. While filming a missile test, he saw a flying object enter the frame, destroy the nuclear warhead, and then disappear in the same direction it had come from. And suddenly, in the same direction, this stuff was flying at about 8,000 miles an hour. The object came into the frame, shot a, a beam of light at the warhead, flew up to the top, shot another beam of light at the warhead, flew around the direction it was flying, shot another beam of light at the warhead, and flew out the same way it came in. And the warhead tumbles out of the, out of space. The speed of the object, over 8,000 miles an hour, and its capability of changing direction in a matter of seconds brought the military to conclude it was not of terrestrial origin. After seeing the footage, Jacobs' superiors confiscated it and gave it to the CIA. Jacobs was forbidden from mentioning in public what had happened. And I said, we got a UFO. And he said, Lieutenant, you are never to speak of this again. As far as you're concerned, this didn't happen. Jacobs' testimony is confirmed by Ross Diedrichsons, who at the time was an Air Force colonel. They actually photographed the UFO following the missile as it climbed into space and shining a beam on it, which neutralized the, uh, the missile. And this was recorded. It was all hushed up. In 1967, Robert Salas was in charge of the nuclear launching pads in the military base of Maelstrom in Montana. It was the peak of the Cold War, and nuclear missiles were kept constantly on the ready in case of a nuclear attack. While Salas was in the underground control booth, he was informed that a strange flying object had suddenly appeared in the sky and was now stationed above the gates of the facility. Uh, he wants to know what to do. I, I tell him to secure the facility. Uh, we hang up. I go to tell my commander, so within seconds, my missiles start shutting down. I recall uh, losing all, all 10 of them. By shutting down, we mean what? By shutting down, what I mean is they were not launchable. They, they were in no-go condition, uh, disabled. How long do we start them? How long do we start? Uh, well, I'm sure it took over a day. And Also, Salas' testimony is supported by the one of another colonel, Duane Arnson. The crew going on duty and the crew coming off duty all saw the UFO just hovering in midair. It was a metallic circular object and something turned those missiles off and so they could not be put in a mode of launching. It's important to bear in mind that these missiles are designed to be independent systems. So if you do something to affect one missile, it won't affect all the other missiles because they're totally separate. The actual reason for so many uh, missiles going down simultaneously was a big puzzle. Salas, too, was told to never mention the event again. He said, you need to sign these documents not to disclose any of this to anyone ever. And um, we signed, and basically that was it. Is the United States government hiding knowledge of UFOs? The war about the truth on UFOs between the American citizens and the military started back in 1947 with the well-known episode of Roswell which is still at the center of a major controversy today. It is interesting to note that Roswell's Air Force Base housed the very planes that had dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki only two years before. 
During the week of the 4th of July, several people saw a strange flying object crash in a deserted area near the city. First to reach the crash site was Mac Brazel, a rancher who lived and worked nearby. Brazel collected some of the debris but was unable to figure out what it was, so he decided to bring it to the town's sheriff, George Wilcox. The sheriff was just as surprised by this material he had never seen and called the nearby military base. The intelligence officer in charge at the time was Major Jesse Marcel. Marcel went to the crash site and collected a few more pieces of debris. On his way back to the base, he stopped by his home to show them to his son, Jesse Jr. He came back real late one night, about 2 o'clock in the morning, as I recall, very excited because he woke myself my mother up saying they found parts of a UFO or a flying saucer at that time. And uh, he wanted me to see it because it was such of an unusual uh, type of uh, finding. Another person who saw some of these fragments is Frankie Rowe, the daughter of a local fireman who at the time was 11 years old. When I would wad it up, it was like I had nothing in my hand. I couldn't feel it touching my skin. That was real weird. Drop it on the table and it was just like water, the way it would spread out. On the very evening of the finding, the base commander, Butch Blanchard, announced to the press that the remains of a crashed flying disc had been recovered. The next day, the news was all over America. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the... Everything was to change dramatically. Jesse Marcel was summoned to the military base of Fort Worth, Texas, which was under the command of General Remy. Here, Remy called a press conference in which Jesse Marcel was forced to present some debris from a weather balloon instead of the material he had found in the desert near Roswell. The newspapers immediately published their retraction, and the news of the flying disc was officially considered dead. This is what Jesse Marcel Jr. had to say about this episode. Photograph of the debris that was seen in General Ramey's office at Carswell Air Force Base in uh, Fort Worth, Texas. This is my father holding up uh, what is very obviously parts of a uh, radar target with uh, balloon debris. Emphasize this, this is not what was seen on the floor of our kitchen that evening or that late uh, early morning hours in 1947. This is totally different. Further in life, Jesse Marcel would confess to his son that it had been in fact a cover-up from the military. There obviously was a cover-up of this uh, accident because uh, years later my dad uh, said he was actually part of the cover-up because he went along with the weather balloon story. Marcel told his son that he had been ordered to present the debris from the weather balloon and was told to never talk again about what he had seen in Roswell. My dad explained to my mother that this was a non-event. Don't even discuss it with your friends. He didn't want me to talk about it, so we did not talk about it. Jesse Marcel never went public on what he had seen in Roswell, but before he died, he gave this interview. There were just fragments strewn all over the area, an area about three-quarters of a mile long and several hundred feet wide. One thing I was certain of, being familiar with all our activities, that it was not a weather balloon, nor an aircraft, nor a missile. It was something else, which we didn't know what it was. We're receiving requests for information from all over the world, 
and they kept telling everybody that the crashed object was not of terrestrial origin. There was a tremendous amount of excitement because I, here I am, a little country editor in a small city in New Mexico, talking to Paris and Rome and, and London and Tokyo, and I can't remember all of them. At that point, Roswell was hit by a wave of threats from the military authorities directed against anyone who appeared to have some information about the incident. Frank Joyce had been among the first to break the news over the local radio station. There was a young lady on the line saying, Colonel so-and-so, uh, this is the Pentagon calling. And the voice on the line says, do you put that story on, on the air about the flying saucers? And I mean, his voice was, you know, the type that really conveys menace and power. And I said, yes, I did. And he says, you're going to get in a lot of trouble uh, for this or made some, some threatening comment. And I said, look, I'm a civilian. You can't tell me what to do in stories I put on the air. <clears throat> and he says, I'll show you what I can do. And bang, hung up the phone. Soon after, the owner of the radio station for which Joyce worked received a phone call from Washington. I got a call from Washington saying, look, if you put out any stories on this, this thing, you're going to lose your license. And it's not going to be over a period of time. It's going to be the same day that we tell you that you're off the air. Also, Frankie Rove's family received an unpleasant visit from a military who did not identify himself. He had this club or stick or whatever it was, and he would, was beating it on his hand. And he would hit it. Every time he would say something, he'd hit his hand. Despite the efforts to cover everything up, the rumor of the flying saucer kept circulating all over the place. The military then changed the official version for the second time, and they said the object was a secret weapon composed by a weather balloon and a disc-shaped flying machine. But it was too late, and the flying saucer fever was already spreading across America. Hundreds of sightings were being reported from all across the country. Specialized publications flooded the market, and clubs of UFO believers were being born by the day. More and more people came forth, maintaining that they had seen flying saucers and claiming that soon the American government would have officially announced the existence of visitors from other planets. And that before too long, the evidence will be incontroversial, that the ships are here and that they are real. What happened instead was exactly the opposite. In order to contain the popular excitement, the government created the so-called Project Sign, which was officially in charge of collecting and explaining the hundreds of sightings that were being reported from all over America. When the project was completed, however, there was a moment of true embarrassment, as even the military had to admit that they were not able to explain a substantial part of the sightings. We have received and analyzed between one and 2,000 reports. There have been a certain percentage of this volume of reports that have been made by credible observers of relatively incredible things. It is this group of observations that we now are attempting to resolve. The heads of the project were immediately replaced and the project itself was renamed Grudge. The new members of the team were clearly told to never talk about UFOs again. 
Headed by Major Quintanilla, Grudge appeared after every sighting and immediately offered an explanation of terrestrial nature for each case reported. After three professors from Ohio had photographed this formation of shining globes in the sky, Grudge explained that it was a flock of birds reflecting the light from the city underneath. After a multiple sighting, which involved also some local policemen, Grudge explained that it had been just vapors from a nearby swamp. As the preposterous explanations kept piling up, more and more people began suspecting that the military was hiding the truth to the population. But the military has always maintained that there was nothing to hide. The Air Force has been accused from time to time of hiding information about UFO. What do you have to say to that, Colonel Patrick? Well, these charges are absolutely untrue. And we've always honored accredited media when they wanted to investigate a given specific sighting. There's nothing to hide. There's nothing to hide at all. In 1969, Grudge was terminated and published under the more appealing name of Project Blue Book. It listed over 12,000 sightings, the large majority of which was explained by natural phenomena, alleged hallucinations, or by flying crafts of terrestrial origin. But there remained over 700 cases which even the military could not explain. Despite this, the officials from Project Blue Book emphatically declared that there has been no evidence that sightings categorized as unidentified are extraterrestrial vehicles. With this statement, the U.S. military put an official end to their investigations on UFOs. But some internal documents, which were later declassified, told a completely different story. The phenomenon reported read one of them, is something real and not visionary or fictitious. In an FBI internal memo, we can read, the flying disks are not the result of Army or Navy experiments. In another Pentagon document is written, flying saucers exist. The matter is the most highly classified subject in the United States government, rating higher even than the N-bomb. In the meantime, the number of UFO sightings was increasing and the task of keeping a register was taken up by a private association of researchers and scientists called the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON. The Mutual UFO Network is a nonprofit organization dedicated to the scientific study of the UFO phenomenon. Free from government bureaucracy, MUFON experts simply began archiving all the sightings reported without trying to explain them one way or the other. Since then, MUFON has grown to be a true international organization with offices in all the most important cities in the world. In America alone, MUFON has more than 1,000 private investigators who are sent on the field only after taking specific courses that prepare them to approach the interviews in a complete and consistent manner. The job of the uh, investigator is not to express an opinion, not to influence witnesses, but basically to keep his mouth shut, listen to what they have to tell him, and put that together in some kind of meaningful form. And you have to have uh, some training to be able to approach the subject in the right way. Once ready, the investigators are giving a tape recorder, a photo camera, GPS instruments, and everything they need to thoroughly interview the witnesses of the sightings. 
All data collected is sent to the central office, where specialized operators analyze the different cases with scientific criteria and discard those that are clearly a fake or suspicious, as well as those that can be explained as natural phenomena of terrestrial origin. The remaining cases are carefully catalogued and archived. Unlike the military, MUFON makes its archives freely available to the public through the Internet. This has produced a list of thousands of sightings, all considered legitimate, ranging from 1878 until today. A good percentage of the reports comes from the southwestern United States, especially Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. This is the area where most of the American atomic research takes place. In recent years, also Mexico has reported a wave of collective sightings. But there are now reports, valid and fully documented, from every corner of the world. Despite the severe criteria used by MUFON, it's possible that some of these cases are the result of errors or very well done tricks that went undetected. But there are at least as many reports in the last 50 years that defy any possible terrestrial explanation. We take you to Los Angeles and the report of... The first historic case is the so-called Battle of Los Angeles, which took place on the night of February 25th, 1942. Anti-aircraft guns went into action against unidentified aircraft in the Los Angeles area. Around 2 a.m., a huge flying object suddenly appeared over the skies of Los Angeles. The object moved southward, presumably over Huntington Park. It had been only three months since the United States had entered World War II, and immediately everyone believed the city was being attacked by some strange Japanese craft. By 3.30 a.m., observers said the object... But the mysterious object, which moved extremely slowly across the sky, revealed absolutely invulnerable to the anti-craft artillery. Shells frequently could be seen bursting near the object, but none appeared to hit it. More than 1,700 rounds of heavy artillery were fired against the flying object in less than 20 minutes but the only damage registered was among the population due to the metallic debris falling from the sky. The shooting brought warfare to the front door. Three people died and a dozen more were wounded while the flying object slowly disappeared into the night without having dropped a single bomb over the city. Approximately 20 minutes after the firing died down, the ship returned and headed westward from Long Beach toward Santa Monica. Then the ship disappeared for the second time over the ocean. Another famous case is the Lubbock Lights, which dates back to 1952. Hundreds of people reported multiple sightings of a strange formation of lights which repeatedly crossed the skies of the small Texas town. A group of professors managed to snap a few shots of the formation during the last passage. The images have been analyzed and declared authentic more than once. In 1958, a geological expedition from the Brazilian Navy observed the strange flying object near the island of Trinidade off the Brazilian coast. The team's photographer, Almiro Baraunha, caught the object before it disappeared behind the island, 
only to reappear a second later, traveling at full speed in the opposite direction. More than 50 out of the 300 sailors on board saw the same object moving erratically at high speed without ever producing the slightest sound. The Brazilian Navy had the negatives analyzed by their specialists, who concluded that there had been no manipulation of any kind. The object seen over Trinidade was real, and its fantastic performance remains impossible to explain even with the most modern technologies. One of the most famous cases ever took place in England in 1980 near the US military bases of Bentwaters and Woodbridge, which at the time housed nuclear missiles. Around 2 a.m., the military on guard noticed a brilliant object descend in the forest of Randersham, which is located between the two bases. The first group of military that inspected the forest found itself face to face with a strange, brilliant object silently floating among the trees a few inches from the ground. When it was happening, everything seemed to go slower. We seemed to be in like a I wouldn't say a time warp, but like everything appeared to be happened slower to us and everything felt different. But when it was all, when it disappeared, it was like everything was normal again. The squad then called the deputy commander of the base, Colonel Charles Holt, who drove to the site filled with skepticism about what he had just been told. And I was really going to debunk it, quite frankly. And as events unfolded, I became more and more concerned that there may be something to this. Holt carried in his pocket the small tape recorder which he normally used to take notes on location. I did take an audio tape. In fact, I brought the original tape recorder with me, and I made a tape recording, which is about 15 or 20 minutes long. It's rather famous now. This is how we have a live recording of what Holt and his men were experiencing as they proceeded through the forest. A blast, what looks like a blasted or scrubbed up area here. In the spot where the floating object had originally been seen, three flattened areas of about five inches in diameter were found. The three spots formed a practically perfect equilateral triangle. When I first saw it, I didn't perceive it as something sitting on the ground with a tripod, like a tripod type thing. Now all of a sudden there's physical proof showing that something sat down in that area. At the center of the triangle, Holtzman registered radioactivity levels far higher than normal. Up to seven tenths. Nicholas Pope, at the time, worked for the British Department of Defense. The British government's defense intelligence staff subsequently assessed those radiation readings as significantly higher than background levels. So there was a real tangible, solid piece of evidence to, to back up this, this uh, extraordinary testimony. Also, the trees around the landing site showed freshly broken branches. We could see branches up to an inch, two inches in diameter, which had either been knocked completely off or had been bent downward. But the biggest surprise for Holt and his men was yet to come. would say to Jim Penniston, do you see that? Do you see, do you see what's out there at, that, at the edge of the trees? And as we got closer and closer, I saw it. 
It's like just looking up and then I can see it moving left, right, left, right. And oh, it, sir, sir, here he comes from the south. He's coming toward us now. Strange. Oh. And the flash is so bright to the star scope that uh, it almost burns your eye. Now we're observing what appears to be a beam coming down to the ground. This is unreal. It was kind of difficult going from a skeptic to suddenly a party involved in the whole thing. I really didn't know quite how to react. Uh, I guess I was a little concerned that uh, are people really going to believe me when I tell the truth? And that's, I thought I had no choice but to tell the truth. Holt presented his superiors with a complete and detailed report of the incident, together with a copy of the tape recording. Despite this, the U.S. military has never acknowledged the presence of a UFO over their base. The soldiers who witnessed the incident were told to sign a document in which they stated that all they had seen was the distant glimmers from a lighthouse. And I was told to sign some paperwork stating that uh, what I saw out there was just uh, the beacon that was, that was out there and that, and that uh, there was nothing out of the ordinary. Yes, there was a cover-up. The British Department of Defense immediately corroborated the American version of the facts, stating that there had been no threat to military security. Not everyone agreed. That is one explanation that it actually happened, as Colonel Holt reported. The other explanation is that it didn't. And in that case, one is bound to assume that Colonel Holt and all his men were hallucinating that the colonel of a, an American Air Force base in Suffolk and his merry men are hallucinating when there are nuclear-armed aircraft on the base must be of defense interest. If indeed what he says took place did take place, and why on earth should he make it up, then surely the entry of a vehicle from outer space, certainly not man-made, to a defense base in this country also cannot fail to be of defense interest. In 1990, hundreds of people reported a strange object flying over the skies of the small town of Elpen in Belgium. Three points lumineux très puissants, une petite lumière clignotante au centre, la forme triangulaire vole très lentement au-dessus des maisons. Among the first to notice the strange presence were two officers from the local gendarmerie. There was a huge triangular platform and underneath it strong headlights and in the middle was this blinking pulsating orange light it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 
the whole thing was floating in the air. The same object was later seen by a different group of officers. We had uh, no explanation for what it might be, but it was real, and uh, it was above us. The flying object was also seen by the NATO military radars covering the area. We phoned to other uh, civilian and military uh, radar sites, and they had precisely the same echo at the same place. The Air Force went on the chase, but the flying object started performing such maneuvers that it made it impossible for the jets to even approach it. This is to confirm that we now have a lock on. The pilots confirmed that it was impossible for them to accelerate as quick as the target was. The object dropped from 10,000 feet to 500 feet in a few seconds. That's not like, you know, uh, super technology, that's Star Trek. We measured some exceptional accelerations which, which cannot be related to conventional aircraft. That is, that is uh, clear. On the following day, more than 600 people reported having seen the same object over the city skies. In mobile, above the motorway. In the middle was a flashing red light. It passed by approaching the roof. The description was pretty much the same for everyone. The object was shaped like a triangle with three powerful lights on each corner and one less powerful light in the middle. Basically what we saw was this big triangle object with three uh, bright white lightnings in the corners. You could see three white lights uh, which formed an equilateral triangle. At a given moment, it tilted slightly. We could see again the shape of a triangle with bright headlights and one in the middle. This original picture, electronically enhanced, shows the shape of the object to be perfectly consistent with the witness's description. After this episode, Belgium was inundated by a wave of sightings that lasted for several years. The most famous case of collective sighting is certainly the Phoenix Lights, which took place in 1997 in Phoenix, Arizona. Weird happenings in the skies over Phoenix recently. And no one seems to be able to explain what it was. And now... Thousands of Arizonans reported seeing a triangular shape. Over 10,000 people saw a formation of powerful lights float silently over the skies before disappearing into the night. This didn't look like anything I'd ever seen in my life. Many investigators call it the largest sighting ever, lasting the longest amount of time seen by the largest number of people. There are also many amateur videos that portray the same event. Dude, they're all like, uh, like, little circles. But they're hot, it's like they're hovering. Dude, we got a telescope, where's the telescope at? I'm going to get the telescope. It's so strange. Some witnesses said that the lights belonged to a huge V-shaped object which floated for a long time over the valley without ever producing the slightest sound. It was a giant V, all right? Uh -huh. And the right side of the V went over us. The left side was like a couple blocks over. And as it's moving, it's blocking and unblocking the stars. There is actually a shape. The object we saw, if we opened up a newspaper, you could not block out the object that we saw. Because of the V-shape, someone suggested it could have been a B-52 bomber from the U.S. Air Force. B-52s, however, are not equipped with that kind of lights. They are anything but silent, and above all, they cannot stay afloat in the sky. 
My response was we could land all 40 of our B-2 bombers on the wing of that craft. These are the proportions between a Boeing 727 and the object described by dozens of witnesses in Phoenix. To me, the most shocking thing was the silence. I was like, how can this huge object in the air that was the size of, I compare it to two cruise ships almost, it was like a city in the air, um, not make any sound. It was just... As popular pressure kept growing, the state governor, Fife Symington, promised an in-depth investigation on the sightings. And now I'll ask Officer Stein and his colleagues. He later called a press conference and announced to have found the solution to the enigma. Don't get him too close to me, please. <laughs> but it was just a joke, meant to defuse the overwhelming pressure. Now this just goes to show that you guys are entirely too serious. <laughs> Reporters laughed heartily, but the Phoenix people didn't take it very well. I thought it was really disgusting. He was just dismissing everything that these people had seen and said, just like we're all Looney Tunes. Nobody in state, local, federal, military, nobody wanted to talk about it. Um, they didn't want to interview witnesses. They said it didn't happen. They said it didn't concern them. Uh, there was one People in Phoenix were not giving up. They just wanted to know what the flying object was. The military then said it was an Air Force drill in which they had dropped flares of the kind used in action to illuminate the terrain at night. Very few people bought it. I mean, flares cannot, cannot keep a formation. They drift at the wind, they float haphazardly. They have huge smoke trails that are illuminated by the flares itself. The biggest surprise of all came from the governor himself after he concluded his term in office. Once a normal citizen again, Symington confessed he had seen the large spaceship himself. I think it was from another world. I've never seen anything like it, Larry. It was enormous. Um, it was unlike anything I'd ever seen. If you if you had been here ten years ago and standing out here and looking up there at the uh, at the lights and the view, um, you would have been astounded. You would have been amazed. And I suspect that uh, unless. Uh, uh, the Defense Department proves us otherwise that it was probably uh, some form of an alien spacecraft. This is Symington's explanation for having lied to his citizens ten years before. I think as a public figure you have to be very careful about what you say because uh, people can have pretty uh, emotional reactions and, and, uh, and I said my goal wasn't to try to stir the pot. But he himself seems to have been deeply touched by the event. The lights were really brilliant uh, and it was just fascinating. I mean it was, it was enormous. It just felt otherworldly. You know, you're, in your gut you could just tell it was otherworldly. Also very credible. What really made Mexico famous in UFO history is the recurring appearance of true fleets of unidentified flying objects in the last few years. <laughs> Lately, also Europe has been registering the appearance of some flotillas of unidentified flying objects. This sighting took place in Islington, England in 2007. In January 2008, the citizens of Stephenville, Texas, witnessed a series of sightings that no one has yet been able to explain. Among the witnesses was also the county constable, Leroy Gayton. I saw a red glow 
It, it was a fiery red looking color I'd never seen before. Didn't appear to be too far off the ground. It, 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 was, it lit up and it faded and it reappeared right next to where I'd first seen it. Steve Allen is a local businessman and a private airplane pilot. And I saw two strobe lights coming towards us at a very high rate of speed. Uh, the closer it got, the slower they got. I saw several white lights, bright lights. Uh, they appeared to be like strobe lights, and they were moving around the sky, uh, not really grouped together. They were pretty far apart, just bouncing around. It passed by. We could see the back side of it uh, had quite a few unusual strobe lights flashing, and they reconfigured to a vertical strobe light scenario and uh, they turned into a flame and then it just disappeared. What was so astonishing is the speed that this thing took off. I mean, it took off so fast that it was like... This amateur video seems to confirm the testimony by Leroy Gayton, who has repeatedly spoken about lights dancing in the sky. Uh, but they weren't just doing this, they were like, just moving, you know. Like a light show? Like, yeah, similar to a light show. After a while, the flying object seen by Steve Allen flew over in the opposite direction, chased by two military jets. Uh, ten minutes later, the lights reappeared, and that's when we saw the two uh, military jets, and we suppose in pursuit of chasing it, and they headed back east. How fast was it? Was this vehicle going? Uh, when we first saw it, Larry, I think it was probably running around two to 3,000 miles an hour. It's hard to judge. Uh, coming at us very fast, but it was gradually slowing down. And like I said, by the time it got into Stephenville, it came, basically came to a complete stop. The flying object came to a stop right above Ricky Sorrells, a local farmer who at the time was out in the fields. I was in the process of taking another step when I looked up, and there it was. And uh, the thing was huge. It was um, so big that I couldn't see the edges through the canopy of the trees. Where did it go, Ricky? Where did this thing go? Um, I was actually watching underneath, and when it took off, uh, it took off so fast, if I would have blinked, I would have thought it vanished, but I had my eyes on it, and I know it took off flat at a 45-degree angle. In the following days, the Mufon local offices were inundated with people who wanted to tell the story and wanted to hear the ones of others. At midnight, when I go to bed, I mean, I just turn the camera on and um, catch that. Um, what it is, I don't know. There's a ball of fire coming through the clouds, and then the sky did this. Rear end would come over, and then the bottom end would come over, and just kept doing that, head over, and then it would go from left to right, and I believe there's other people out there. We have NASA that explores. They may have a NASA of their sort that explores. <laughs> I think they're so amazed at us because we're such uh, primitive compared to their standards. I think it's kind of like us watching an ant farm. I think that's the way they're doing us. <laughs> Obviously, the presence of these UFOs doesn't necessarily mean that they are all of extraterrestrial origin. Some people, in fact, believe that all unidentified objects ever observed are just secret military craft built right here on Earth. Already during World War II, Hitler's scientists were trying to build disc-shaped aircraft with which they hoped to turn the tables on their enemies in the last part of the war. After Germany's defeat, 
the same studies were taken up by the United States under the direct control of the CIA and the Pentagon. In the early 1950s, British inventor John Frost was working for the Canadian aerospace company called Avro. Frost proposed to the United States a new model of flying disc that would have the agility of a helicopter, would reach exceptional altitudes, and could fly at supersonic speeds. John Frost had the promise of something that no one else could deliver at that point, a supersonic, more than uh, twice as fast as uh, the speed of sound aircraft that could fly higher and faster than anything else out there and never needed a, a runway or any airfield to operate. The Pentagon invested $10 million in the project, but the prototype exploded in the hangars before it could even be tested. Frost then reverted to a less ambitious project, which would have served as a platform for developing the flying disc proper. It was called Avrocar, and was meant to be used as a sort of flying jeep to patrol large areas of territory. The prototype was presented to the Pentagon brass in 1959, but right from the start it showed strong limitations in maneuverability due mostly to the lack of a tail and side stabilizers. And the biggest challenge that the concept faced was the pitch instability. The aerodynamic center being so far forward of the center of gravity, <clears throat> it's not a good recipe for a happy flight. Further efforts were made to improve the prototype, but ultimately the Pentagon scratched the project and the Avro car never went into production. In the meantime, there had already been episodes like Trinidad or Lubbock, in which the flying objects had displayed exceptional operating capacities superior even to modern day technologies. In the 1960s, the military produced a new series of disc-shaped aircraft that were finally said to be able to fly. Hundreds of fans claim to have seen some of these mysterious objects fly near Area 51 in Nevada. In any case, we're still talking about airplanes with noisy turbine engines, which need long stretches of asphalt, like those present in Area 51, to take off and to land. It's a far cry from the mile-wide ships described by hundreds of witnesses capable of remaining still and silent in midair before taking off at exceptional speeds absolutely unthinkable with our technologies. Furthermore, it has been found that many of the images circulated in the 60s with an aura of secrecy were in fact the result of cheap photo retouching. In this case, the flying disc had replaced an experimental X-15 supersonic jet. Here instead, the two flying discs are covering the same X-15 and a regular bomber from the US Air Force. To stress how thin is the probability that all UFOs ever observed are of terrestrial origin, we have the testimonies of many military pilots, like the one of Captain Huertas from the Peruvian Air Force. In 1980, says Huertas, a strange flying object was observed by more than 1,800 soldiers floating above the Peruvian base of Arecibo. My commandant of the unit gave the order to despegar in Guillet Sukhoi 22 to shoot the spherical object. 
porque estaba en espacio prohibido, sin permiso y temíamos espionaje. Yo me acerqué al objeto y le disparé 64 obuses de 30 milímetros. Algunos obuses fueron contra el terreno y otros le pegaron de lleno al objeto, pero sin ningún efecto. Los obuses no rebotaron, probablemente fueron absorbidos. La pared de fuego en forma de cono que yo mandé normalmente hubiera destruido cualquier objeto en su camino. El objeto entonces empezó a subir y a alejarse de la base. Y cuando yo estaba a unos 11.000 metros, de repente se detuvo, forzándome a salir del lado porque ya me encontraba a solo 500 metros de él. Entonces hice un ascenso para atacarlo desde arriba, pero justo cuando ya lo había centrado en la mira y estaba listo a disparar, el objeto hizo un ascenso vertical evadiendo mi ataque. Dos veces más tuve al objeto en la mira, cuando éste se encontraba estacionario, y cada vez se alejó al último momento antes de mi disparo. Entonces decidí hacer un ascenso a toda velocidad para ponerme muy por encima del objeto, pero este empezó a subir también y casi en paralelo con mi avión. Cuando sobrepasé los 19.000 metros, el objeto se detuvo. Fue entonces que me acerqué a 100 metros del objeto. Tenía unos 10 metros de diámetro, estaba como esmaltado con una cúpula de color crema sobre una base metálica ancha y circular. No tenía motores, ni escapes, ni ventanas, ni alas o antenas. Carecía de todos los implementos típicos de un avión y sin ningún sistema visible de propulsión. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Fue en ese momento que me di cuenta que esto no era un objeto para espiar, sino que era un ovni. Algo completamente desconocido. Ya casi no tenía combustible. O sea que ya no podía ni atacar ni maniobrar mi avión, tampoco escaparme a alta velocidad y sentí temor. Quizás este era mi fin. Tuve que planear parte de mi descenso por falta de combustible, haciendo zigzag y siempre viendo por mis espejos retrovisores con la esperanza de que el objeto no me persiguiera. No pasó nada. Después de que aterricé, el objeto permaneció estacionario en el cielo por dos horas más a la vista de todos en la base. Todavía me da escalofrío cuando me acuerdo. Another group of highly credible witnesses is represented by airline pilots who often observe unidentified flying objects of exceptional dimensions while traveling along the regular commercial routes. Pilots make especially good UFO witnesses. They know what's normal in the sky and what isn't. Uh, they've seen all different kinds of airplanes routinely. When a pilot reports a UFO, There's a better than average chance that that's what it was. February 28, 1996, flight Air Shuttle 5959, traveling from Detroit to Cleveland, observes a strange object of pulsating light that seems to be floating on the clouds right below. Air Shuttle 
The exchange is heard by a second plane, Mesaba 3179, who joins in the conversation. pilot from the first plane decides to descend in altitude in order to observe the object with his own eyes. November 18, 1995. Flight Lufthansa 405 from New York to Frankfurt crosses an unidentified cylindrical object flying in the opposite direction and leaving a thick trail of green smoke behind. The same object is seen by the pilot of British Airways 226, which follows the Lufthansa flight a few miles behind. A similar incident was registered by flight Swissair 127 in August of the same year. May 26, 1995. The crew from Flight America West 564, traveling from Florida to Nevada, observes a strange object with a series of flashing lights floating still in the skies of Texas. Not seeing anything on their radars, FAA controllers contact NORAD, the American Air Defense System, which confirms to have no operations in progress in the area at that time. I've got a, uh, something unusual, and I was wondering if you all happen to know of anything going on out here. I had a couple of aircraft reported something 300 to 400 foot long, cylindrical in shape with a strobe. Oh. At 30,000 feet. We don't have anything going on yeah. there that I know of. This guy definitely saw it run all the way down the side of the airplane. It's right out of uh, the X-Files. I mean, it's a, it's a definite UFO or something like that. I... After a few minutes, NORAD calls back FAA and confirms the sighting on their radars. Hey, we're tracking a, a search-only track kind of up where that might have happened. 
We, um, we've been tracking it for about three, four minutes now. In the meantime, the huge cigar-shaped object, over 300 feet long, has disappeared into thin air. What impresses airline pilots the most is usually the speed of these UFOs, which seems inconceivable for our technological needs. Even though this kind of incidence is rather common, neither the FAA nor the military have ever acknowledged the existence of these unidentified flying objects. In fact, pilots are heavily discouraged to talk about these sightings altogether. The pilots that had seen things and talked about it, some of them were let go, some of them released from their flying and um, treated as nutcases and things like that. If you report a UFO sighting to the FAA, you might as well turn in your license the next day. The FAA, the military, even civilian authorities don't want to know about UFOs. What can the reasons be, one wonders, for such a strict, systematic and obsessive form of secrecy? In 1952, the city of Washington was literally flooded from UFO sightings to the point that jet pilots were ordered to shoot down any aircraft that refused to land on command. Washington, D.C., the capital of our But UFOs were always able to elude the chasing jets with great ease. I was 18 years old. UFOs buzzed the Capitol and buzzed the White House on July 19, 1952. I recorded it in my diary. No one knew what it was. The switchboards lit up. Everybody was confused. A few days later, Truman, who was president then, uh, had General Samford go on television. I have the kinescope, actually, and say, look, they're not ours and they're not Russian. We don't know what they are. We can say that the recent sightings are in no way connected with any secret development by any agency of the United States. The situation had sounded the alarm at the highest levels, and President Truman created a commission called the Robertson Panel, which immediately advised to keep all the new information on UFOs hidden from the population. The Robertson Panel concluded that it was in the best interest of the United States government to suppress media coverage of UFO sightings. In particular, the Robertson panel suggested that mainstream media should be used to deny any future sighting, while it instructed the media people to cover with ridicule anyone who tried to maintain the existence of extraterrestrial vehicles. For the first time, an official document bore the term debunking, which indicates the activity of those who endeavor to discredit any rumors of conspiracies by the government. The Robertson panel was followed by the so-called Brookings Report, in which the rationale for keeping the public unaware of the truth on UFOs was somehow explained. The report recalled the infamous radio broadcast by Orson Welles, aired a few years before, in which an imaginary invasion from Mars had been described. Many people had taken the broadcast for real, causing a wave of panic and suicides all across the country. Anthropological files, read the report, contain many examples of societies sure of their place in the universe, which have disintegrated when they had to associate with previously unfamiliar societies espousing different ideas and different life ways. As remarked by this CNN reporter, however, 
Plus, motivation appears insufficient to justify the extreme level of secrecy that surrounds the UFO phenomenon. This really is a government that doesn't mind scaring us. We still have orange <laughs> alerts and red alerts, and yeah. they scare us all the time. It, yeah. it keeps people in work. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering why you think and you just state that that's the reason and that's it. Was that really the motivation? Yeah. At the end of World War II, a race to atomic armaments had begun between America and the Soviet Union. And from that moment on, also the Russians began receiving visits from strange unidentified objects. In the beginning, the Americans thought that the unidentified objects in their skies were Russian, while the Russians feared the opposite. But soon both nations realized that they were dealing with far too advanced technologies to be originating from the other superpower. At that time, astronaut Gordon Cooper was a test pilot for the new U-2 recognition planes and was therefore familiar with the most advanced technologies available to the Army. So I knew that we didn't have any vehicles of that kind and I was 99-9% sure that the Russians didn't have any of that type either. Вот тогда начали думать, что здесь действительно что-то есть. A secret competition between the Soviets and the Americans had begun, both nations intending to acquire new technologies by shooting down any unknown flying object that would appear in the skies. About one year after Roswell, a similar incident took place over the Russian base of Kapustinyar. A Russian pilot encountered a UFO in 1948 and tried to attack it with extremely unfortunate results for both. The pilot was blinded by rays of light emanating from the UFO. Both aircraft crashed to the ground a few miles away from the base. It is interesting to note that Kapustinyar was the exact equivalent of Roswell, in that most studies on nuclear war technology were being conducted there. Sergei Khrushchev is the son of former Prime Minister Nikita Khrushchev who at the time was the Soviet Union's political leader. I know everything because I spent months and years in the Kapustin Yar working there testing our cruise missiles that we designed for the Soviet submarine to sink American aircraft carriers. It seems that the UFO shot down over Kapustin Yar was the first aircraft of unknown origin captured by the Russians, just as the one captured in Roswell was the first one for the Americans. But it seems that in the Soviet Union, the air battles were far more frequent and brutal than those over the American skies. There were 40 instances where Russian warplanes were sent after UFOs. This is not temperature inversion. This is not a weather balloon. This is not swamp gas. These are craft floating around in the airspace of Russia. And they sent warplanes to go chase them. Former pilot and cosmonaut Marina Popovich, a Russian national hero, confirms to have witnessed a battle in the sky between a UFO and a Russian MiG. Alexander Kopagin was the commander of a squadron and a pilot instructor in one of the flight schools. One day he was flying with a cadet and they were attacked by a UFO. They went into a spiral dive. 
the same Popovich during a different mission saw a group of UFOs flying over the skies of Russia. I saw three fireballs, three amazing lights in the form of a triangle, and I observed them as they flew away. It is thus understandable that also the Soviets, like the Americans, always try to keep the maximum secrecy over the UFO phenomenon. Everything was top secret. There's nothing there not secret. CIA agents from Russia often sent dispatches confirming the sightings on part of the Soviets. They noted that also in Russia, the sightings were often taking place near their nuclear bases. In the 1970s, the Russians experienced an incident similar to the one reported by Robert Salas in the Air Force base of Maelstrom, Montana. After a strange, brilliant object was seen floating over a missile site in Ukraine, one of the missiles with an atomic warhead suddenly began the launch sequence without anybody having started it. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Something or somebody had entered the secret codes that started the irreversible launch sequence. For the longest 15 seconds, the Russians tried to stop the procedure, which would have launched a missile towards a fixed target in the United States, but were unable to do so. A few moments before liftoff, the flying object left the skies over the base, and everything went back to normal. They were ready for launch. The UFO, poof, goes away, poof, the uh, command control module goes back to normal. In a different instance, it appears that an entire group of Russian ballistic missiles was destroyed on the launch pads from the intervention of some UFOs. I have heard a story, for what it's worth, and I don't usually talk about myths, but I've heard that four Soviet big launch vehicles were exploded on the pads by aliens because they kept trying to shoot down the flying saucers. According to the Russian National Archive, which released these images. This is the retaliation from the UFOs after the Soviets had shut down two of their craft over a site housing ballistic missiles. But also in Russia, at some point, the sightings became too frequent to just pretend that the problem didn't exist. Thus also the KGB decided to prepare an official report over the sightings, which was in some ways very similar to Project Blue Book. It was called the Blue File and was eventually made public in 1990. The Blue File described over 15,000 cases of sightings, air chases, flying accidents and shootdowns involving both UFOs and Russian jets. I believe this is not everything the KGB has had in their hands, and I'm not the only one. 
In the meantime, the United States and the Soviet Union had signed the nuclear agreement of 1971, which happened to include some specific procedures to avoid confusing the presence of possible UFOs with regular enemy planes over each nation's domestic skies. In the agreements it was written, the parties undertake to notify each other immediately in the event of detection by missile warning systems of unidentified objects if such occurrences could create a risk of outbreak of nuclear war between the two countries. Who could these unidentified objects belong to if not one of the two very nations signing the agreement? Furthermore, a question arises. If Russians and Americans had already developed technologies capable of disabling the enemy's nuclear missiles, as it happened in Maelstrom, Montana for the Americans, or in the Ukrainian base for the Russians, why has the Cold War continued for 20 more years? And why are nuclear missiles still being built today? Also Europe has taken the UFO problem quite seriously. After the Bent Waters case, and especially after the wave of sightings in Belgium, French President Chirac ordered a commission composed of top-level experts to study the UFO phenomenon in depth. The working group was called Cometa and included scientists like André Lebeau, director of CNES, the French equivalent of NASA, General Norlaine, former commander of the French Air Force, Jean-Claude Ribes, famous scientist and former director of the Lyon Observatory. The title of the report was UFOs and Defense, What Shall We Prepare For? The group analyzed over 500 sightings from all over the world giving priority to those reported by people of maximum credibility like civilian or military pilots. The Cometa group integrated their analysis with reports and investigations from the alleged UFO landing sites. The Cometa report concluded that these crafts demonstrate the reality of UFOs with remarkable silent flight performances apparently operated by intelligent beings. But in the absence of explanations for the phenomena cited, the hypothesis of an extraterrestrial origin can no longer be ignored. These extraterrestrials possess high intellect and are technologically advanced over us to have been able to achieve what we do not yet know how to do. All this, concluded the report, implicates some major issues relating to global security and calls for all nations to tackle the UFO issue in a joint manner. But in the United States, the Cometa report found no major publisher willing to distribute it. Besides a small article on the Boston Globe, no major newspaper in America even mentioned the report. And each time a journalist tried to bring up the issue with their own editors, they would be met with a stern refusal and often with derision. Leslie Keane is one of them. People laughed, hung up the phone. Uh, the subject matter is ridiculed in the media. And so even though I was dealing with facts in this article, and high-level journalism, um, they weren't interested because of the subject matter. It seems, therefore, that we are still paying the consequences for the disinformation and derision campaign set in motion by the Robertson panel and then implemented for decades by the U.S. government with rigorous determination. In the military, they do ridicule you, because I was ridiculed a few times. Uh, I was told I would never make master sergeant when I bought this crap up again. There seems to be some reason to discredit very viable and very reputable witnesses when they say something is unidentified. Now one of the things that I've found is that, 
the way it's been kept secret to a big extent is the fact of through ridicule. If it always had been just top secret, I think most of the world would know about it. At times I used to carry nuclear weapons. And in other words, I was uh, mentally fit to carry nuclear weapons, but I'm not mentally fit if I see a UFO. And when derision appeared insufficient, true threats would come into play. It had been discussed with me on numerous occasions. Um, talked about what could happen uh, to me uh, militarily and, and what could happen to me if I, even if I discussed this as a civilian. Uh, anything to discredit you and uh, you'd never get a promotion and I'd spend the next three and a half years up at the North Pole living in a tent checking the weather balloons. Uh, if, if their military personnel were, were to talk about this they could be uh, court-martialed or at least threatened to be court-martialed to get them to back down and to scare them. He was talking about being erased. And I said, man, I said, what do you mean, erased? He said, yes. He said, you will be erased. He said, they'll, uh, he said, they'll go after not only you, he said, they'll go after your family. Now, those were his words. And they're yelling at me and they're, they're hollering and cursing and you didn't see anything, you know, and we'll do you and your whole goddamn family. And they're, they're you know, it was, it was basically that for about eight or nine hours. Now, these guys, they're just off on their own. Uh, there's no oversight, no control, and they just do whatever they want. Measures have been taken by agencies to terminate people who are, who appear to be inconvenient or troublesome through knowing too much. I would go interview people that claimed they had seen something and uh, try to convince them they hadn't seen something or they were, you know, hallucinating or something. Well, if that didn't work, another team would come in and give all the threats and uh, threaten them, their family, and so on and so forth. And they would be in charge of discrediting them, make them look foolish or so on and so forth. Now, if that didn't work, then there was another team that put an end to that problem, one way or the other. It was a real eye-opener, how deep the secrecy goes, how deep the cover-up is. Thanks to this strategy based on derision and intimidation, the Pentagon walls still protect the most important information on UFOs ever collected by the U.S. in the last 60 years. And since the problem doesn't officially exist, it's not even possible to identify the agency one would need to address to get more information. See, this is what you'd be up against. Who are you going to see? So you see how the government operates? Even with the experience I had being on the top of the government all the years, I couldn't tell you who to go see. Even presidents like Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton, who wanted to know more about the UFOs, were met by a wall of silence and refusal. And President Carter, uh, after his inauguration the previous day, called the Director of Central Intelligence in uh, and uh, informed him that uh, the President wanted to have access to the classified documents relating to unidentified flying objects and the potential existence of extraterrestrial intelligence. At that time, uh, the Director of Central Intelligence, George Bush Sr., 
informed the president that, uh, that Mr. Bush was not going to release this information to the president. When President Clinton requested all the information available on UFOs, he received this letter from NASA. No government agency is currently responsible for investigating UFOs because there is no actual evidence that alien life exists on other planets or that UFOs are related to aliens. Talking about Roswell, Bill Clinton once stated that, I did attempt to find out if there were any secret government documents that revealed things. If there were, they were concealed from me too. And if there were, well, I wouldn't be the first American president that underlings have lied to or that career bureaucrats have waited out. It thus appears to exist an invisible military elite which somehow holds the most important information gathered in the last 60 years about UFOs which escapes any kind of government control. A shadowy government with its own air force, its own navy, its own fundraising mechanism, and the ability to pursue his own ideas of the national interest, free from all checks and balances, and free from the law itself. It is a clandestine group, a quasi-government group, a uh, quasi-private group. It is without any type, as far as I can tell, of high-level government oversight. And that is a great concern. And the truth is, they have hidden things like UFO and extraterrestrial information from us for years. When working at the radar system of the Defense Intelligence Agency, John Maynard realized that something was wrong and questioned his superior. I noticed the satellite's positionings. I said, now this is supposed to be a system that tracks radar anomalies on Earth, right? You know, the whole thing, the movement. Yep, that's what it does. And he says, well, why are half of them pointed towards the outer space? towards the moon, towards areas that are just blank space. Well, I don't know, was the reply. He says, never thought about it. I says, well, at least half of those satellites you got up there aren't looking at Earth. <laughs> I said, what are they looking for? He says, well, you got to have a need to know, know about that. I said, I see. In other words, who's coming? <laughs> He says, we don't know. Dropped, end of subject. It requires uh, to be further protected to ensure that there is only a limited access to that information to a small number of people. So small you can put them on a, a list of paper or on a piece of paper and list them by name. Depending on the level of the compartmentalization and, and the secrecy level, you have to go through a fairly significant background check, but then you have to sign a statement that you, you will not divulge the existence of the project or even answer a question that could divulge the existence of the project. It's just that you sign a contract with the U.S. government and the funding would show up at the right place at the right time. There's a large number of covert projects that go on in the United States that none of us are ever aware of. There's only probably about 25 people in the world that know things that are known at that level. Though apparently fantastic, it begins to form the possibility that atomic weapons are being developed in the hope of countering one day an attack from an extraterrestrial civilization, and one wonders if this could be the true reason behind the so-called Star Wars project. Big enigma.
when Star Wars was brought out as an idea, which was before Reagan, actually, they wanted a weapon system they could put in space that would stop a ballistic missile. That was the concept. Now, if that ballistic missile happened to be coming from another direction other than earthbound, could it do the same thing? This possible scenario appears absolutely catastrophic, and the chance that somebody believes that we could fight extraterrestrial civilizations with our nuclear weapons places the entire humanity at utmost risk. If beings can travel in time-space, then anything we would put in orbit as a weapon would be like, like going against Genghis Khan with a firecracker. We are moving in an avenue where we are going to militarize space. As a direct result, we will become a threat to them. Even more terrifying would be if the information on UFOs were kept secret to continuously feed an arms industry that sees the stellar shield as a source of infinite profits. One is reminded of the words that Ronald Reagan pronounced after having met with Russian Prime Minister Mikhail Gorbachev. I couldn't help but say to him, just think how easy his task and mine might be in these meetings that we held if suddenly there was a threat to this world from some other species from another planet uh, outside in the universe. We'd forget it must be noted that Reagan repeated the same speech four different times, one of which in front of the United Nations. Perhaps we need some outside universal threat. I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. Humanity is now left with one major question. If extraterrestrials do not exist, how many billions of dollars are being spent to feed the so-called military-industrial complex instead of being diverted into peaceful technologies and innovations which are at this point dramatically needed on our planet? If instead extraterrestrials exist and are capable of penetrating our atmosphere at will, what are the risks of a nuclear confrontation with these unknown entities? And who should be charged with making decisions that could affect the future of the entire humanity? We want the United States government to stop perpetuating the myth that all UFOs can be explained away in down-to-earth and conventional terms. When it comes to events of this nature dealing with the great unknown, we deserve, I believe, more openness and a serious pursuit of the facts by our government. There is a serious possibility that we are being visited and have been visited for many years by people from outer space, from other civilizations. That it behoves us, in case some of these people in the future or now should turn hostile, to find out who they are, where they come from, and what they want. And I think it's, it's our job to try to find out if there is really something in the air. Where it comes from, what the origin is, and uh, what the intentions are.
With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Preview. After my son was born, I began to reflect on a story I'd heard many years before. It was a story about the power adults hold over children. The stories we tell them, and the stories like this one, that they are never meant to hear. of April 1966 started just like any other day in the city of Melbourne. Then something very strange appeared in the sky above the suburb of Westall. It hasn't been explained to this day. This boy come running in saying, Mr Greenwood, Mr Greenwood, there's these things in the sky, there's these things in the sky. We looked up and we just saw this saucer type thing taking off. It wasn't a plane, it wasn't a balloon, it was nothing like that. A lot of the kids took off towards where it seemed to go. All the students were just running all over the place, uh, hysterical. Went to a high school as a, as a teaching situation, ceased. My girlfriend and I sat on the fence, climbed the fence, the school boundary, and we were crying, thinking it was the end of the world. as it's set in a school. And most of the players were school children. They had this extraordinary experience, which they then tried to share with adults. And a lot of them had a lot of trouble doing that. They were disbelieved, almost stigmatized. I think like a lot of other people, I just shut up about it because of the ridicule. And it was everybody. You know, you were a kid, you were making it up. So you just be quiet and in your mind you just think, I know what I saw and no one's ever going to shake me from that. I know what I saw. I really felt for them as people who had this incredible experience and yet they haven't been able to make sense of it. This is the biggest mass UFO sighting in Australia, yet it seems to have been suppressed deliberately kept out of the public view. Like the witnesses, I want to find out why. Whatever material was created about this story 
has simply been buried. And yet, this memory has survived. And it only has to be slightly pricked. And it's like the floodgates open. And all the memories come rushing out. I was precipitating various chemicals in order to make crystals. And I just happened to be looking out the window, thinking how to fudge my science report. What I saw directly south was something that I'd never seen before. We were out playing sport on the oval. One of the kids yelled out, look, look up in the sky, you know, it's flying saucers. And, and I remember we all looked up and it really was a flying saucer. <laughs> I mean, from what you imagine, a flying saucer, it was a round silver disc. Um, and it, it seemed to be very low over the school. And I remember kids screaming and running inside. The student came in uh, was hysterical, leaned up against a sliding door, screaming, there's a flying saucer in the oval. And of course, everybody started to head towards the door and the teacher said, sit down, it's not recess yet. And a few minutes later, the bell went off. Everyone started moving like a whole lot of zebras being terrified by crocodiles. I went with the herd went. Barbara Robbins was the chemistry teacher at the time. She just grabbed a camera and started clicking. went into the staff room. Because I knew I wouldn't have a chance to have a cup of tea any other time, I went to get a cup of tea. And then because I was a smoker, and this, this is something that has uh, stayed with me for 42 years. Yes. I was up a cigarette. And so I don't know how much I delayed before I went outside. Everyone just took off uh, out into the oval. Uh, in time to see it lifting off from the oval. It was probably, I don't know, 50 feet or more in the air at that stage. I see Andrew Greenwood, the science teacher, coming towards me, and he said, did you see it? Did you see it? And he pointed up in the air, and I said, no, see what? I have a very, very clear picture of him, and I remember almost exactly uh, what he said. And he said it was up in the sky, it moved at incredible speeds, it, it, it hovered, it, it seemed to go away and there seemed to be light, light planes. And he thought, Cessna's from, he thought they were actually checking it out from the urban airport. Yes. And they were circling around it. Sort of stopped dead, um, and stopped dead in the air. And then it just sort of started descending straight down. And as I say, got down about a, halfway up that gum tree or above the goalpost and sat there for a while. And then it just sort of lifted straight up and then just took straight off. This thing went down behind the trees, then it came up. And it was like it had become aware of these planes coming in and it just went woof and just left them like they were standing still. And then it went across to an area called the Grange, which was a bit of a pine plantation behind the school. Because I walk around with the Westall story inside my head, as soon as I enter the landscape of Westall, out it comes, like a three-dimensional children's storybook. It pops up out of the soil. It's like I've entered my favourite children's story. 
Grange was a special place for Westall students. It's where they went on cross-country runs, but it's also where childhood games and hunting for lizards gave way to illicit smoking and steamy liaisons. intertwined with romping around down at the Grange, out of sight of the school authorities or their parents. It has that sense of being involved with something dangerous or clandestine, and they were part of it. A lot of the kids took off towards where it seemed to go, and it disappeared down behind the trees. So we all got through this fence and ran towards where it had appeared to land. Tanya and I and this other girl, we were over the fence. Tanya was in the lead and we ran towards where it was coming down. I lost sight of Tanya. She was in front of me. A couple of girls got there faster than me. I'm, I was a bit slow and they actually passed out and apparently it did land because when we got there, there was a great big round patch of like flattened yellow, almost burnt, although I'm a bit sketchy on that. I can't remember if it was really burnt or whether it was just flattened, but it was sort of yellow and the grass was all flattened in a swirly sort of a pattern. Before I got there, um, the disc came back up again. So I stopped chasing it. We looked up and we just saw this saucer type thing taking off and it seemed to turn side on and just disappear into thin air. Well, what about your friend Tanya? I believe she did see it on the ground. She did see it on the ground? So I was given to believe, yes. yes. Um, but I went back to school and Tanya went back to school and basically had gone all to pieces. There was definitely an ambulance on the Oval and I was told that she'd been taken away in the ambulance and that was the last time I ever saw her. Wow. She was just gone and she never came back to school. Tanya wasn't the only person who saw the craft on the ground. Before they headed over to the Grange, Victor Zakruzny says two objects landed in a grassy paddock where a street is now. All the kids were hanging on the fence there. There's quite a few kids there. Mm -hmm. It's a high fence and I got up got up the top there and all you could see is two discs, one there and one bit further away, probably three metres apart. I could hear somebody in the background saying, stay away, don't jump the fence. And so I said, oh, bugger, I'm going over the fence. The craft probably would have been about there. And there was another one set back a bit on an angle, oh, probably just about there. There's a few kids walking around there, and I was the only one on this side. I got up to it to want to touch it, and it was, well, you could feel heat about a metre away coming from. It was pretty warm or hot, and within a few minute or so, it just, both of them just lifted up at the same time, about this height. And um, I seen what, oh, that was breathtaking watching that. And then it just gradually lifted, lifted up, and then went off towards the pines. I did a rough sketch of it. Wow, look at that. 
This is the view from underneath. That's like. underneath. There's no seams, no joints, mm. it's just smooth metal. Normally an aircraft has uh, sheet metal, pop rivets, or all that sort of stuff there. This looked like come out of a mould or something like that, or one yes. smooth piece of metal. Uh, it was just incredible. It's just something like you see in the movies. But this is more than just cinema. If we look at the possibilities for this story, they are extraordinary. We're talking about the possibility of life coming from another place and just appearing one day in their midst and then leaving again and leaving everybody with so many questions but with a new openness to the beyond. If I'd been in Westall on that day, I would like to have raced after that flying saucer and uh, gotten so close to it to have held it in my hands. But the adults at Westall High School saw it differently. That afternoon, our principal called a, a special um, assembly and told us all not to talk about it. All I know is the whole school was told off. The headmaster says, all oh, you kids are nuts. It's a weather balloon. Uh, don't talk about it. I was prepped uh, to tell the students that what they'd seen didn't exist. We weren't allowed to leave the school, at least I wasn't. My job was to walk up and down the corridors and make sure that all students were in their rooms. I was walking back from the West End. There was a confrontation between Mr Sambleby, Barbara Robbins and a man I'd never seen before. I thought it was a police uniform, but it was just dark blue. It was demanded that she hand over, not the film, but the entire camera. I was near the gate and the police had arrived. There were journalists outside. The police were being caught in to keep the journalists away. We were told that we weren't allowed to speak to the media in school grounds. After uh, school finished, there was a TV crew outside the school grounds, so we undertook an interview with them. Now, I can't remember whether it was a principal or um, a school representative that came out and ordered us to go home and the film crew to leave. And I'd actually been giving an interview to Channel 9 and the policeman actually walked up to them and said, stop filming and you go back into the school ground. OK, so that's what I did. I was 12 and a half years old. Because I was a mischievous sort of person, I was always getting into trouble. I had detention for actually appearing on the show and then I got detention again at a later date after my, my um, picture and story was in the right. Dan Allen Journal. So I didn't go unpunished, but it was worth it. <laughs> I now had two new leads to follow, Channel 9 and the Dandenong Journal. I rang Channel 9 first. They searched for a flying saucer story and there it was. to do is find the can with the matching number. But oddly, there was nothing there. I was absolutely devastated 
and nobody had any idea where it had gone. It's very frustrating, but the good news is the Dandenong Journal does still exist, and I'm told it's here in the library. It's the only written account I've heard of from the period, so it's really precious. Something obviously happened. Some people apparently didn't want the kids talking about it. And that raises all sorts of questions. Why couldn't it have been discussed? Why couldn't it have been talked about openly? And why couldn't anybody find any more information about what it was? The headmaster, Frank Sambleby, is a key part of the story. He's passed away, but I hope his children, Max and Gail, can shed some light on his behaviour. Hello. Shane here. Anybody home? Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Max? <laughs> nice to meet Hi. you. Nice to meet you. Thank Come you very in. much. Thank you. He played 50 games for the Hawthorne Football Club. He was a halfback flanker, and in those days, halfback flankers ran in straight lines. And that's what he did. He was pretty black and white. And, and he had a very strong sense of right and wrong. And yeah, if, if it didn't fit in with what he believed, then yeah, he found it quite difficult. And this thing would have been seen as something that was disrupting the smooth operation of the school. And he would have been a sceptic as well. I mean, he didn't believe in supernatural things. He he believed in the real life, didn't he? You know, when we were kids, there was a picture on the wall of a, a Roman soldier standing, holding his spear, and the lava was all falling down from Pompeii, and people in the background were all crouching and running, and Dad said, see, he's standing there doing his duty. And, you know, that, I mean, as children, that's, we had to learn that, Discipline was important, respect, all those things, all the old values. And, yeah, he found it really hard as things changed to... He was pretty judgmental. There was plenty for Frank Sandleby to be judgmental about. In the 1960s, rebellion at home and on the streets brought many young people into conflict with the establishment. Schools were run like the military, and teachers demanded respect and obedience. Westall High was no exception. I tried to contact some of the teachers, but many have passed away. As far as I know, only the science teacher, Andrew Greenwood, saw the object in the air. Although he's spoken with me privately, he refuses to go on the public record. Several teachers dismissed the whole thing as mass hysteria, the response left students feeling confused and conflicted. Some are still searching for answers. I want to find some sort of proof that this happened so we don't keep on, you know, getting called silly people and 
No, no one's ever wanted to know the details before. They just think I'm stupid. They don't want to know the story. They just, I said, I've seen UFOs or flying saucers and they say, yeah, sure. What drugs were you on that day? And, um, you know, I was 13 years old. I was at school in the daytime. <laughs> I wasn't on any drugs. Slowly you start to drift. I'd like you to visualise the area that we've discussed before. You're in the classroom. You're with Mr. Greenwood, who was the teacher there. There's a little fella comes running around and says, there, flying saucers outside, flying saucers outside. Everybody laughed. And Mr. Greenwood said, come on then, let's have a look. See yourself running down the Eiffel. affected by our experiences that aren't ever properly acknowledged or accepted. As a boy, I was living in a fairly unhappy home. My own father had died, so my mother had remarried and had uh, given me a stepfather that I'd never asked for. I was quite powerless, and no one really seemed to understand what I was experiencing as a child. I never really had anyone talk to me about it. Just having it acknowledged that what I was going through was real, that would have been a start. One, two, three. Even though I know it's okay. true, wow. Wow. the more I try to see it again, it, it, the harder it becomes, I think. I can see bodies, but I can't see people. Faces, you know. Mm -hmm. But I can still see the trees and the yeah, and the things. It yeah. was, yeah. The feelings don't go away; they just get buried, and they sort of fester a little bit. I saw the classroom for the first time, and then I saw heads bobbing, walking across the, the oval towards the end of the school ground, and then there they were. Still not 100% clear, but I know what they are. They're, they're UFOs. If they were UFOs, there should be people around the area who can corroborate what the students saw. A headmaster might be able to shut down a high school but surely not a whole suburb. Within days of delivering my flyers, I'm contacted by a new witness, Paul Smith, who used to work on a property next door to the Grange. We were loading up for market, and as we were pulling the carrots up, I looked up and I was facing the object in the sky, and um, I just thought, oh, somebody's got some way of... Uh, projecting a film of something into the sky. I didn't believe that it was really happening. But um, my boss turned around and he saw it, and we stood there looking at it for several minutes. 
A few moments later, the children came over from the high school and they noticed us, they saw us, and they sort of took a while to make up their mind whether they would come onto the property, realising it's private property. Yes. And they um, decided they'd come in anyway, and they did. They ran straight over, straight over the market garden, and they crossed and walked down here to this corner. After a while, um, trucks turned up with, um, it looked like army trucks. Right. And um, there would have been about 20 guys got out. About how long after um, the object had vanished in the trees? Oh, I think it was only 20 minutes, which is not a long time. How did you know they were from the army? Uh, well, they were khaki-coloured trucks, the um, covered in patches, you know, sort of that they uh, to hide, you know, like camouflage. Camouflage truck, yeah, and it was uh, the long ones that carry quite a few people, and a couple of jeeps. So a couple of yeah. trucks, yeah, a couple jeeps. of jeeps, yeah. and about 20 men yeah, in, yeah. in uniforms? Yeah, yeah. And the uniforms were what sort of uniforms? Uh, just khaki coloured uniforms. Just khaki? Yeah. No other, don't remember any other sort Not of... Not that I can remember. Colours no. or... No. I went looking for a military expert. If the army was able to turn up in just 20 minutes, where could they possibly have come from? It's quite evident that there was no deployable troops available in Melbourne at the time. Um, the main units uh, were all logistic, uh, the supply battalions and so forth at places like Broadmeadows. There were lots of uh, citizen military forces, uh, today's equivalent of the Army Reserve, part-time units, but they couldn't have responded uh, so rapidly, uh, and nor could they have responded in such a large number. I've come to the conclusion that the first people to respond to the incident at Westall would have been civilians of some sort, quasi-civilians, uh, probably working for defence uh, and probably wearing the sort of work dress that civilians working for, say, the Department of Supply, say, the research and development uh, establishments of the period, the sort of work dress that those personnel wore. I discovered that other people in uniform were seen in the area on the day of the sighting. Les Medju went to the Grange with his younger sister, but they saw what seemed to be a different unit. We hid behind this tree, but fortunately this tree, the branches came down to the ground. Here we are, crouched down on our knees, and we can only look every so often as this tractor came around. He was on guard duty. This was a farmer who has decided to help out. We observed two army trucks, two men in the camouflage, and two men in blue uniforms. And it appeared that a uh, soldier was using a metal mine detector. He's walking around, sweeping back and forth. The next time I see them, they turned and they started kicking violently at the ground. The two officers decide then, time to come back. They come back to the truck and they were gone. And then we could enter the paddock. We had no idea what we were walking into. We didn't know what those army men were doing and I, all I can say, it was just, what is this? To have the army there and all the rest of it, it was something important. They certainly were not Australian, because Australians were not using camouflage uniforms in those days, in the, in the mid-60s. Uh, nor would they have been British. But the description of the uniforms certainly matches those worn by the United States Air Force um, in the mid-1960s. 
There were American military and intelligence personnel in Australia in 1966 as part of the Vietnam War effort. The Cold War between the USA and the Soviet Union was in full swing, extending across the world and even into outer space. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. The space race between the superpowers fueled the public imagination at all levels. Flying saucers have invaded our planet. Washington, London, Paris. The fascination with flying saucers persisted all over the world. Australia was no exception. Well, so far, I haven't seen anything even vaguely resembling a flying saucer or even a flying cigar. But thousands of people, in fact millions, do believe they exist. What do you think they are? They are real, anyway. They come from the other planets. Some of them might come from the centre of the Earth. I haven't seen one close up yet. This is what I'm looking forward to one day. Yeah, you took a step towards the figures and the object. We used to invite people who reported sightings to talk about the experience because if the sighting was a dramatic one they would feel you know, I just need to talk to somebody but if I discuss it with my friends they say what have been drinking but they needed to talk to somebody who would take them seriously although society members tried to investigate at Westall they came up against a wall of silence all they can now find in their files is a couple of photographs and a sighting report filled in at the time by one of my student witnesses, Joy Tai. They also went to Mareban Airport to look for the pilots of the aircraft that apparently chased the UFO, but nobody came forward. I decided to do my own investigation. I contacted a retired air traffic controller to find out how a UFO and several light planes could fly so close to each other without a report being made. Who was responsible for controlling the airspace? Moorabbin Tower was responsible for the area uh, within a five-mile radius of Moorabbin and up to 3,000 feet. And um, above that, it was the responsibility of Essendon Approach. If you were in a tower, uh, you had the aircraft in sight all the time. Five aircraft on the edge of the airspace, uh, five by the way, in broad daylight, they should have been able to see. They may have found something that um, they thought uh, shouldn't be uh, made public and therefore hushed up. There is evidence that the American government wanted to stifle debate about UFOs. They set up a committee to objectively investigate UFOs, but a leaked memo revealed that the whole investigation was a sham. The government's most vocal critic was the top atmospheric scientist, Professor James MacDonald. Why has the government taken this attitude, in your opinion? As a result of the extremely heavy wave of sightings in 1952, the CIA and Air Force became so concerned over the sheer number of uh, uh, reports that were tying up Air American intelligence channels that they wanted to get this signal out of the system, ask the Air Force, the CIA asked the Air Force for a debunking policy, the literal wording was to debunk the flying saucers, to decrease public interest in the UFOs, 
Uh, regulations were promulgated uh, very shortly that made it a crime uh, punishable with, I think it's $10,000 fine and or 10 years in prison to release any information at air base level on UFOs. And as a result of that, nothing resembling any scientific investigation has been going on in the past uh, 15 years. In Australia, we followed the American policy of ridiculing UFOs. So I started searching for other sightings that might have happened around the same time as Westall. I discovered that four days before Westall, a witness took a photo from his backyard in Melbourne that matched descriptions of the object above Westall. Then, just two days before Westall, Ron Sullivan was driving in central Victoria when he noticed a strange light display in front of him. I got up towards it and holy moly, the whole thing lit up in the 10 foot area at the bottom sort of come up and met the top and the headlights of the car was the biggest awesome thing I've ever seen. They just pulled to the right of this, they were magnetised. I could see all the trees on the right hand side of the road lighting up and I said, get out of this one, and I pulled on the left. Now I could feel the back left wheel spinning and I got out of that. Ron only reported the incident after he heard that a young man died when his car collided with the same tree Ron had narrowly missed two days earlier. A couple of people from the government departments came and visited me. I know one was from the Air Force. They looked at the car, just walked around. I said, well, let's know what you find out. And they said, yeah, we will. We will, Mr Sullivan. Never heard any more about it. When I checked out the Royal Australian Air Force's list of UFO sightings for 1966, none of these cases were mentioned, though we know they investigated them. It took 16 years for records to be made available to UFO researchers. They knew what I wanted to look for, and when I arrived, uh, there was a body of files there that consisted of a couple of very large uh, postal sacks. I kept requesting more and more files, and ultimately I got to a point where I examined a continuity of files that satisfied me that I was seeing a comprehensive picture of the RWF investigation at that time. I had a shopping list of things that I was focused on and uh, one of the key cases that I wanted to find out about uh, was the Westall case. And surprising with the rest of the shopping list I was fairly successful but the, the, the Westall case, given that there seemed to be literally at least hundreds of people involved with it that had media attention at the time. There appeared to be evidence that there was a military investigation at the time. Um, there was no Westall file. The disclosure team uh, was between about six and nine people over, over the years. As you can imagine, a four or five year project, as it turned out, needed quite a lot of effort. Literally, it was looking through hundreds and hundreds of file titles, maybe even thousands at the end. Along the way, we were always looking for files on the Westall incident from 66. We started off with the Air Force, but within the Department of Defence, we also checked out uh, files belonging to the Air Board, unit files from Air Force bases, former Department of Civil Aviation, Air Safety Bureau, CSIRO, intelligence files, ASIO. But the net result is we found nothing in this mammoth a volume of, of government documentation uh, which would even begin to be a hint that there was something about Westall in the government files. So uh, amazingly we drew a blank. The Westall sighting had clearly been erased from the record but why? I hope some publicity would draw former authorities out of the woodwork. Nice, nice to meet you Shane. 
<laughs> Joy, is that Mark yep. Howe from Channel 10? Good nice to meet you. What we're really trying to get now is the people who are here as police, as soldiers, as scientists perhaps, looking close up at what was on the ground. Some closure, Joy. How would you get some closure on this? One thing that we would really like would be that someone either from the police or the military would come forward and say, yes, they were there. Nobody from the authorities contacted me, but another witness did. Kevin Hurley saw the circles at the Grange on the day of the sighting and went back the next day for another look. Then when we came to the area where we'd gone through the paddock, yes. there was the Air Force of the Army, um, a whole group of them there, stopping us from going through into the paddock. Don't come near this in this area. And we, we just um, headed off, headed off back home. And did they give you any reason no. why you couldn't come through? No. There were vehicles on the paddock um, and they had some sort of instrument which at the time I thought looked like Geiger counters. The strong memory I've got is what happened after that. About a week later I decided to go back again to have another look. As soon as we got down to where the, the paddock started, all the grass had been cut, which was quite disturbing. Wow. So then we walked through that area to where the um, circles were and when we got into the area where the circles were previously, the whole area had been burnt, destroying all evidence. You asked me whether an R&D establishment would destroy evidence. Yes, of course they would. Bearing in mind that in the 1960s Australia had great success uh, financially with uh, some of their pilotless target aircraft information related to some of these sorts of projects, if it was to be released to the, to the wrong party, uh, then it would have very adverse effects on Australia from a financial point of view. Any surviving documentation uh, would be in Defence Central somewhere, uh, but also um, probably overseas with the Allies. There may even not be anything left in, in Australia, because bearing in mind it would have been very highly classified and could well have been destroyed, as so much of that sort of record is after a period of time. So it's no wonder that I haven't unearthed any official records on Westall. But it's clear the authorities had something to hide. Just got called into the gymnasium and then these people spoke and, um, you know, they just sort of said, oh, well, what you saw was sort of an experimental thing and you know, we just don't want anyone talking about it or it going any further, so... How many people were there that came and... do you remember? I think there was five, from memory. And they were... were they men and women, or...? Um, yeah, I think there was three men and two women, from memory. As I say, I'm not 100%. Sure. And you remember... do you remember if they were wearing uniforms, some no, of them were in just, uniforms? No, they're just, just in plain suits. and In suits? Yeah. And did they explain where they were from, who they were? No, not really. Um, just a couple of the teachers said afterwards they're from some, one of these experimental mobs to do with the armed forces and stuff like that. And, and, uh, and that was the, sort of the end of it. it. It had to have been something that we were working on and we, we, we knew all about it. We were in on it, even though we might not have known the detail. To have responded, that's one of the... That really, to my way of thinking, that's the key. 
is the fact that we respond, whoever it was, the authorities responded so rapidly. Now, they must have just about been sitting on the trucks with the engine going. And perhaps they were. Perhaps they'd received technical intelligence that there was something going wrong with this experimental craft and they weren't sure where it was going to land, but they were ready to go get it as soon as it did land. It sounds like a rational, logical explanation, but it needs then to be supported with evidence. If you think about how the people described the shape of it, the speed, the manoeuvres that it made, there is nothing around today that comes close to that. The final proof might be, for example, getting a piece of the flying saucer and examining it, uh, subjecting to, to scientific examination and finding that it's, it's a, uh, of an element that is not manufactured on Earth. Now that would maybe the final proof. We haven't got that. So we're still at the circumstantial uh, evidence stage and whether that leads you to say, well, these are from outer space, they're interplanetary spaceships, or not is, is a philosophical question. It's a question of what, what you yourself feel is proof. A yellow sign. I crave the proof that can be held in my hands and touched and smelled and measured. But I think we need to make room for a little mystery in our lives as well. I reckon yeah. somewhere in this area. I believe truth can exist without proof of it. And I see a real truth in the stories and memories of the witnesses. Probably... Even if it doesn't answer the question, what was it that flew over Westall? What I saw, I believe, is what a flying saucer has left behind. Professor James MacDonald looked for proof in statistical data. His research brought him to Australia a year after the Westall sighting. I'd ordered some of his papers from Arizona University, hoping to find something about Westall. Wow, what is all this? There's a lot of stuff here. James MacDonald's journal. His trip to Melbourne. There'll be stuff in here about Westall. Has to be. He just told me that an Air Force officer had been out to school and I was teaching at the time and he told me that he wasn't going to interrupt my class and that I could speak to them. He promptly told me to get lost together. They kind of had much time with him because I know I was very friendly with the senior master of the school. He said they were only in his office for very few minutes and uh, Sam will be sort of come out fuming and uh, muttering, you know, what rot, what rot, and all the rest of it. It's nice to have somebody telling the RAAF that it's a lot of nonsense and sending them packing. <laughs> <laughs> Victims of their own propaganda here. <laughs> yes. Now I had further corroborating evidence that the Air Force was involved at Westall. But students said other senior authorities also came to the high school. I was called down to the headmaster's office and there were two men in the headmaster's office, very well-dressed gentlemen, 
um, in suits. They weren't introduced to me in person and I don't know where they came from. From my references now as an adult, I would say they were Asia. So this is the actual office? Oh, this feels quite weird, yes. Yes. There was a desk down this side here and the headmaster was over here on that side and the two men were standing over there and I stood with my back to the window. Only one man spoke and he started off by, we, we'd like you to go through what you said happened yesterday. He was firing questions at me fairly, fairly rapidly. Then we went into, oh, and we suppose you think you saw a flying saucer. And I'm like, well, I didn't say that. I said I saw an object. And, and we suppose you saw little green men. Can you remember how you felt once it was over? Um, when I was actually in the confrontation situation with, with the men, um, very, very, felt very, very angry. Um, when I came out, I think I burst into tears. They were certainly Australian government and I think it was part of their job to keep everything quiet and to not let, let the facts come out. Um, they knew more than what they were they were saying it was their job to to squash what was being seen it was a bunch of kids that saw this so we would be able to squash this down the authorities had found a way to silence the children but they still had unfinished business with the teacher andrew greenwood he told me that two officers came to his home and threatened him under the official secrets act they said that he couldn't have seen a flying saucer at westall because there were no such things as flying saucers they threatened to tell people he was alcoholic, even though he wasn't. As a first-year teacher with a career ahead of him, he couldn't take the risk of speaking out. The person who had taken all the risks was Professor James MacDonald. His criticism of the government had provoked powerful enemies, but it didn't stop him challenging the establishment with other unorthodox scientific theories. Years ahead of his colleagues, he predicted high-altitude aircraft would destroy the ozone layer and increase the risk of skin cancer. He was invited to address the US Congress, but during his testimony, a congressman made an opportunistic attack. He publicly ridiculed MacDonald by saying he believed in UFOs and little green men. MacDonald's professional reputation was ruined. James MacDonald tried to create a climate of openness where unorthodox thinking could flourish. That's not what happened at Westall. I remember the assembly that we're all called for. We weren't well, even allowed to talk about it in school. We weren't allowed to mention it at all. There's like 20 people plus in the room at the moment and there's a real buzz and everyone's talking about my story. They're talking about the story. And as they're talking it through, they're, they're putting the pieces together. It's wonderful. What isn't wonderful in the telling of this story is that Professor James MacDonald finally gave up the fight for UFO science. Humiliated and broken, he took his own life. MacDonald's suicide played on my mind. I began to think about weapons of mass destruction and global warming, where other brave scientists spoke out and were quickly shut down. 
I want my son to grow up in a world where it's possible to discuss and investigate even the craziest ideas without fear of ridicule or punishment. Was it something from another planet at Westall? It certainly flew, as if it was. I'm left with the feeling that what people saw was what they said they saw. Something out of this world. <laughs>